Good Erev Shabbos, Parshas Chayesara. The Pasuk uh, starts by Yiyu Chayesara, Nea Shana Ve'esim Shana Meshara Shanim. That it was the years of Sara, 127 years. And then it says, Shnei Chayesara, the years of the life of Sara. And it seems uh, very repetitive. We started with Chayesara and it ends with Shnei Chayesara. So what exactly is going on? The Ksav Kabbalah, every time I learn it, it's such an amazing saver. It's like a, a German Rav who's very into the diktuk of exactly how it works out in the Pesukim, but a lot of the Vartlach, he says, seem like Hasidish Vartlach. So uh, he says as follows. He says that, you know, a an animal just really has one life to live. It just has to take care of, of, of its, its gashmias. That's really all, all that matters. And he says a malach, um, a spiritual being, has one life. It just has to be full of ruchmias. He says a, a Jew, uh, a human being, but, but a Jew specifically, has this double task. Has this double task of, uh, on the one hand, very much you have a, a chiv to, to stay alive, you have to take care of your, your bodily needs. You have to eat and drink and, and make a parnasan. You have to do everything that you have to do. Um, but at the same time, there's this expectation that a person has to, uh, has to think about ruchnias. You have to make life spiritual. Um, not only is this like a chiv, that like, oh, you really have to make life spiritual because Hashem said so. Interestingly enough, from a psychological perspective, um, the only way a person will feel as if his life is uh, meaningful in any way is if he or she pursues meaning, right? So it's not enough to just say, well, I just want to uh, you know, make sure that my immediate needs are taken care of and then life will be good. Uh, what we find, uh, you know, very famously, uh, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, is this idea that it's not just the, the imperative from Hashem telling us to feel this way, it's actually baked into human nature that we cannot feel fulfilled unless both our physical needs and our spiritual needs are both taken care of and, uh, and, and, and both paid attention to at all times. And it's a very difficult thing. Very, very difficult thing. We're always trying to find this this balance where you know maybe you're, you're you become too involved in 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 gashmi, you become too involved in your work, you become too involved in the pursuit of uh, physical matters, and then you, you sort of realize, oh, I, I gotta go, I gotta go daven. I need to go and uh, you know refocus my energy. Uh, in fact, Nixav Kabbalah himself later uh, in this parsha he talks about the words. Uh, which we learned from that Yitzchak went to Davin, but he points out that the word lasuach, which which again Chazal understand to be davening, but he says lasuach always means that when life is feeling intense, and you need to just sort of take a step away, you need to sort of avert your attention elsewhere. That is the language of lasuach. And so it's such a fascinating thing that Yitzchak is the one who we learn mincha from, right? From these words, that the, the idea is that 
that in the middle of the day, when you're right in the middle of, of, of it's sort of the, the highest point at which you are probably the most involved in your business, in the needs of the physical world, we say, ah, oh, you need sicha. You need a moment to recalibrate, to remove yourself from that and, and, and try to even out the balance once again. That's, that's lasuach basada. That's the, the, the tefillah of mincha, of sicha. And so back over here, says the Ksav Kabbalah, do you know what it means? Shnei chaye Sarah, which everybody, everybody else seems to, uh, seems to translate as the years of the life of Sarah. Says the Ksav Kabbalah, unbelievable. It's like, it's like staring you right in the face. It says, Shnei chaye Sarah means, it's the number two. Shnei could mean years, but also could mean the number two. Shnei Chayisara means that the two, the double life of Sarah, the two lives of Sarah came together when she died. She led two completely different lives and, 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 and she was able to synthesize the two together. And this is what it's saying. After 127 years, we could say, Shnei Chayisara, that she, she did a great job in the two aspects. She was running her home. She was extremely involved in you know, raising her child and running her home and helping out with all the physical needs of all her guests and of Avram and everything else. But also, on, on some level, she was in a different place at all times. She was living a second life, a life of spirituality. And so this is uh, certainly the challenge of, of all of us today, of all Jews of all time, but it feels uh, so much more so today. Shanae uh, Chaye, the two lives that we all have to live and we should all be Zoche to... Uh, to be to be successful in that, okay. <clears throat> so, a story. I saw a story. Heard a story. Um, so, uh, this rabbi was uh, was sharing. Rabbi Brisky, I think, Chabad rabbi. Uh, he tells a story that when Eichmann was on trial, they uh, they they the state of Israel was very concerned that somebody would kill him before the trial was over. There were obviously thousands of different people who would want Eichmann dead. And, uh, you know, while some felt, yeah, let him go through the, you know, the channels of of the court system, that's fine. Others felt more like, uh, you know, wanting to be vigilantes and wanting to um, sort of carry out extrajudicial kinds of execution. And so uh, Eichmann had to be guarded. Can you imagine a Jew in Israel had to guard Eichmann? <clears throat> so much so that he had to taste all of his food before he even ate it because they're afraid he'd be poisoned. Um, and for a long time, this person was, um, was, you know, somebody from the Mossad. It was hidden. No one knew who it was. But 30, 40 years later, after he retired, uh, he became public, and uh, a German TV station heard about this, and they, they they were intrigued by it, and so they wanted to do an interview with him. So this guy turns out he was a Yemenite Jew, and uh, he said, I'll, "I'll do the interview with you." Uh, he didn't want to, but they, they really pushed him, and he said, "I'll do the interview with you, but but we have to do it uh, on my terms. Uh, I'd like to do it at the hotel." So they they said the hotel. That's a very public place. It's going to be loud. It's not very uh, conducive to an interview. Uh, we, you know, we have a, a, a studio. It'll be perfect. He says, no, 
you know, no, no deal. I'm not interested really in doing this anyway. Uh, if you want to do an interview, we'll do it at the hotel. So what could they do? They, they agreed. And they sat down and <clears throat> I think it was early in the morning, so it wasn't so loud. And they did this interview. They asked him all sorts of questions. What was it like? And what was going on? And all this stuff. And finally, the last question, they said, uh, by the way, why, why did you want us to do this at the hotel? And so this Jew, he said, look, you know, there are going to be many Germans who, who watch this interview. And he said, I, I felt it was important for them to see that the Jewish people are, are alive and well, that the Jewish people are thriving, and that, you know, we are, we are connected to our 2,000 years of history, of before anything ever happened, and we are moving forward into the future. And he says, I felt we needed this, the, the Kotel, as the backdrop to show that we are people who are not going away. And, uh, you know, I think it's a beautiful idea, and it almost feels like uh, almost, you know, every interview, everything going on today, you almost feel like every interview should have a virtual background of the Kotel, of just sort of reminding ourselves, Am Yisrael Chai, that, uh, you know, it's obviously a scary time, but uh, I think people are feeling very, uh, very connected to the Kotel, very connected to our history, and very confident that uh, everything's going to go well. Okay, so this is a little bit of a of a Bavakama kind of shaila, and Daf uh, is in Bavakama. But let's let's throw out this famous shaila, uh, <clears throat> and Rav Chaim Rav Chaim Salvechik dealt with this shaila. Here's Rav Zilberstein's take. The shaila is as follows: Somebody, Ruvain, uh, has two very expensive stamps, and what happens is that Shimon destroys one of the stamps. But now, by destroying one of the stamps, the other stamp, being that it is now even more rare, the other stamp immediately becomes worth uh, more money than, than it was before. And it's now, right, if we could give numbers, let's say the stamps were each worth $1,000, and by destroying one stamp, now the other stamp is worth $2,000. So the question is, uh, is Shimon of any money to Ruvain? Uh, for damaging his stamp, or is he not? Do we say, uh, it seems like the, the question is, do we say that when it comes to damages, it's all about what you damaged, or do we say it's all about what the victim lost? Okay, that seems to be like the two sides. So if you say it's all about what you damaged, you damaged a $1,000 stamp, so of course you have to pay it. I don't care about anything else. But if you say that it's all about what the victim lost. The victim did not lose one dollar here. This is the Shaila. So, Rav Zilverstein, he brings uh, a Shilte Giborim in Baba Basra. And in the following case. So, there was a Ganev and a, a thief. He stole something that was borrowed. Um, and the borrower, now that his item was stolen, he goes back to the lender... And he says, you know, how much do I owe you? And they settle for a small amount, a lot less than what it's worth. The lender says, look, I was letting you borrow this. I'm not going to charge you so much. Okay. So the borrower says, wow, thank you very much. And now we want to know what happens to the, to the Ganev. Okay. How much does he owe uh, when he is caught? Okay. Especially considering if, if the item's gone. 
Now, do we say that he has to just pay whatever the deal between the borrower and the lender was? Or do we say he has to pay what the item is worth? And the Shilte Giborim says, like one of the sides, that it seems like, and he brings he brings a Gemara, that you're only chayev what you were mafsid, whatever you made the victim lose. So here, since the borrower only had to pay a fraction, that's all the Ganav has to pay. And he brings a Raya from a Gemara uh, in Bavakama, where somebody stole an animal that was going to Hektish. And since uh, he did not have a chryas, the person who was going to give it to Hektish did not have responsibility to replace it if it was lost. So therefore, uh, you, the Ganav, are actually putter because you didn't actually make him lose anything. So that seems like it's all about what the victim loses. And in our case of the stamp, you would not be chayev at all. However, there is a Shar Mishpat. Shar Mishpat says, no, you're chayiv to pay exactly the worth. And he brings a case in Bava Metziah, Daf Lamed Hay. And here is the following case in Bava Metziah. Somebody rented a cow, and he lent that cow to his friend. Okay? And then the cow died. So, the, the, the Gemara says, that the renter could swear it died in its regular way, Kedarka. And the general rule about a socher, a renter, is since he paid. So if it dies during the regular course of business, mm-hmm. so you're actually not chayev. Okay? And therefore, says the, says the Gemara, that according to the Tanakama, the socher could just swear it died, Kedarka, and the Shoel, the one who borrowed from him, has to pay the socher. So the socher is potter because it died, Kedarka, because it died in its regular way, but he, since he lent it to somebody else who's a Shoel, and the Shoel is chayev even for something that died in its regular way, therefore the socher could actually make money on this. And Rav Yossi over there argues, and he says, no, you have to pay the Baal, you have to pay, uh, it doesn't go to the socher, it goes to the uh, to the original owner. So the Shara Mishbat asks, he says, I don't understand. Why would the Shoel have to pay anything? Okay? Meaning, if you're telling me, at least according to Tanakama, if you're telling me that the Socher could just swear and it would be it would be gone, right? He would not have to pay anything. So then that means uh, the Shoel did not really make him lose anything. Right? And if you're telling me that the Shoel still has to pay, apparently... The, the Socher sort of hits it rich. He gets lucky. That because of the fact that you damaged my thing, right? Because of the fact that you damaged my thing, um, even if I didn't lose money, I, I, get to, uh, I, I get to gain that money. And so this is, <clears throat> this is uh, the question over here. So there's at least two sides back and forth. Um, and, and, and that's that. Rose Zilberstein actually wants to say, um, Zilberstein wants to say what I think to be a tremendous chiddish, but he wants to say as follows. He wants to say that when it comes to any item, uh, there are two different aspects of the worth. There's the, the actual worth of the item, which here he says is a stamp. Its actual worth is two shekels or whatever a stamp costs. And he says, then also, there's sort of the scarcity uh, which gives it extra value. And he wants to say that perhaps, which is uh, very very hard to hear this, he wants to say 
maybe you're only high of two shekels of what it's actually worth because that's the value. So when it, in terms of what you damaged, you, you damaged an item worth two shekels. In terms of uh, anything else, that, then we would go to, well, how much did you make him lose? And since you didn't make him lose, you would only be high of the two shekels. Uh, spoke this out with some people. I find this very, very difficult to hear, to, to separate uh, the value into two different things. It seems like the value of something is whatever the market uh, allows for it to, uh, to, to charge. And therefore, it's really hard to say that this has an etzem worth, uh, an inherent worth of only two shekels, and that, that, that you know, everything else about it is, is what the person would lose if it was gone. Um, but this is what Zilberstein says, and he holds that perhaps in this case, just to be clear, I know it's a complicated case, that uh, by ruining one of the stamps, but since the other stamp became worth a lot more, you'd only be high of the two shekels of what it was originally worth. So uh, hard to uh, hard to know, but that's what he says. Have a great job.